Thank you for deciding to listen to our show today. Today we have a great interview for you. It's with Michael Waddington. He is one of the best defense attorneys in the world. He specializes in helping people in the military. He's got a lot of fantastic stories and he is a best-selling author. In this interview, he's going to give you his mentality that he brings to his career, which has led to a lot of his success. Our sound quality for this interview wasn't up to par. We had some issues with Zoom, but moving forward, we're going to get that fixed. So bear with us on this one, but you're going to want to listen to this interview. Welcome in to the Free Retiree Show, where we help you transform your life so you become financially free. In this show, we'll give you the inside track on how to excel in your career, filter out the noise surrounding your finances to help you make smart financial decisions, and we'll learn from thought and business leaders who can help you live your best life. Ladies and gents, welcome into the show. Your career, financial, and legal friends are all in the house. I'm alongside career advisor Sergio Patterson and Silicon Valley's favorite attorney, Matthew McElroy. What's going on? How you guys all doing this morning? Still waking up. All right. So thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Free Retiree Show. For today's show, we're doing a thought and business leader interview. We have a special guest for you. We're interviewing best-selling author and world-renowned attorney, Michael Waddington. He's a criminal defense attorney specializing in military cases. This stuff is legit Hollywood style stuff. Murders uh, during the war on terror, secret prison torture, cases against low ranking military officers versus the US government, really cool stuff. He is also known as one of the best trial attorneys in the United States. He's got over 400 cases and he's been a speaker at the prestigious National Lawyer Summit, speaking alongside attorneys, Mark O'Mara and Mark Garagos. So it should be a really fantastic episode today. Today's episode, we're going to be going over Michael's experience as a, an attorney. I'm sure he's got some wonderful stories. Uh, one thing that makes him unique is his mentality. He's actually written a book based off of Sun Tzu's art of war mentality, and he uses it in his career, in his life. So we're interested to get some questions in about how he uses that and get more insight into that. And we're also going to discuss his path to building a successful law practice and becoming a world-renowned attorney. So this is an episode you guys are all going to want to listen to. Matt, how are you feeling about this? What do you think about one of your fellow peers coming on the show? I'm excited. This is a, this is a very cool area, and uh, I got a lot of cool questions. I mean, there's, there's so many interesting things we can talk about. So, yeah, let's get into it. All right. So if you haven't done so yet, make sure you share and like our show, like us on Facebook, like us on LinkedIn. We appreciate all the love and support. And after you listen to the show, if you have any questions, financial related, career related, or legal related, please send them to ask at thefreeretiree.com. We're gonna go to a short break, but when we're back, we're gonna be speaking with attorney Michael Waddington. Welcome back into the show. 
Today, we're interviewing best-selling author and world-renowned attorney, Michael Waddington. He's lectured at the prestigious National Trial Lawyer Summit. He's written multiple books, including Kick-Ass Closings, Art of Trial Warfare, Winning at Trial Using Sun Tzu's Art of War, Pattern Cross-Examination for Sexual Assault Cases, The Trial Wars, The Trial Warriors, Book of Wisdom, a compilation of quotes and success in law and life. And he's got a new book coming out called Battlemind, a military legal thriller. And his case, his cases has, have been seen on CNN, Rolling Stones, NPR, Forbes, People, and Good Morning America. Michael, thank you for coming on to the show. We are happy to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome today. I'm really happy to be here. So, Michael, give the audience an explanation of what you do. It sounds like really exciting stuff. I would love to, you know, be a fly on the wall while you're in court or just kind of see how your life plays out every day. But give us an actual rundown of what do you do? So what I do professionally is if, if you're if you are in trouble and you're in the military, your son or daughter is in trouble anywhere in the world and the military is going to come after you and they throw everything they can at you. You can go with your free military attorney who's generally a well-meaning but not very experienced attorney or you can go out and hire a professional to come in wherever you are it could be in Europe and Asia anywhere in the United States and you could have a civilian lawyer which is what I do come in and defend you in a military court and so I'll be in most of these courts I'm the only non-military person in the courtroom the judge is military the jury's military my clients military the prosecutors military and I defend these people and and I, I love it because Everyone I represent, none of them have a prior criminal record. They're people who volunteered to serve their country. And most of them are outstanding citizens that might find themselves in a bad situation. And so we try to level the playing field because they, they, the military stacks the deck, no doubt. Um, we talked earlier about how the jury's selected and who comprises the jury. The system is not designed. It's supposed to give them due process, but it's really not designed to favor the accused. Most of the cases end up in guilty pleas, and that's where we come in, and we don't do guilty pleas. It's very rare. We, we try pretty much every single case. Yeah, that's amazing. So the military doesn't like you very much is what you're telling us. Well, <laughs> that's – no. And in the military, there's a constant turnover. But my, you know, my last case when I was a JAG lawyer, I was a young captain. And if, if you go to my website and you scroll all the way to the bottom, you'll see some news articles where young Captain Waddington – I mean, this is like 15 years ago – is defending someone on different charges. And then all of a sudden this top Al Qaeda operative escapes from U S custody and disappears. His name is Omar Al Farouk And the army charged my client with beating and torturing this guy. And it turns out he wasn't even in the prison at the time, but the CIA was, we didn't know this back in 2005, but the CIA was running a torture program. There was, there were rumors and suspicions about it. The government denied it. Rumsfeld denied it. Bush denied it. President Bush, and so what they were doing is prosecuting soldiers as scapegoats to try to show, hey, we don't torture people, we don't abuse people. And they lined up a bunch of low-level reservists and court-martialed them. And so that was my last case. I was assigned this, this guy named Sergeant Driver. And he's, he's uh, retired from the Army right now. We won the case. But I, I started digging into the case, and we started uncovering names of people that did work for the CIA. We started uncovering documents that they wanted hidden and before long, I, I basically came under investigation. They started looking into my background because I would do press conferences. You were not supposed to do them in the military. 
And if you're a JAG lawyer, you're an army officer, you're not supposed to talk to the press. But it was such a cover up that I, I did do press conferences. And then you'll see like on my website, I go from being a captain to the escape of Omar Farouk to my clients found not guilty. And the, the t- torture program starts unraveling back in 2005 and 06. And then I'm a civilian. So I resigned at, right after that case was done. I resigned my commission as an army officer. Because you can't, I don't think you could really defend people in the military. I mean, it's one thing to defend someone for shoplifting or smoking pot or something like that. But if you're going up against people in the White House, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, and you're a young, if you're an army lawyer, you really can't do your job under those circumstances when they want you to lose without, you know, your career taking a dive or, or them coming after you. I mean, it's not, it's not uncommon. I mean, we see movies about this where they, the government comes after the little guy or the lawyer that's defending, you know, someone that's, that's realistic stuff. So I thought I had more power outside and my career was done after the Omar Farouk escape debacle happened. And so that, that's what I do now. Wow. That's, that's, that's pretty crazy. So you, you were a JAG for four years about? No, I was a JAG from 2001 until 2006. And before that I enlisted in, you know, I grew up in the eighties. I'm, I'm 45, going to be 46 here next month. So I, I grew up in the eighties and, you know, when, during the cold war and all this stuff with the Soviets and, and all that. And so, um, my brothers and I all enlisted when we were in high school and we all ended up getting ROTC scholarships. So we all went to the military when I was 18 and I continued in the military until 2006, but I'm still kind of in the military, but I'm not in the military because I'm deep inside of their, like a lot of those cases that you, if you're going to look up like court martial trials, a lot of those cases I've done or my friends have done other civilian attorneys. Yeah. It's such an interesting situation because you're, you've, you're ex-military and you're kind of now on the other side. So it's like, you're probably pulling on both sides because you love the military. I mean, you, you were in the military, mm-hmm. but now you're kind of defending people that are being accused of something by the military. So that's, that's an interesting predicament. It's, well, it's, the, the thing is, most of the people that I represent, and we can't kind of pick and choose who we want to represent. We don't do certain cases. We try to represent people that are getting railroaded. Know, of different ranks and we represent all different ranks. And so we kind of, we screen them. We don't kind of screen them. We screen them. We don't want people that, that just keep getting into trouble. that don't want to listen to us. People that are clients that are narcissistic, that think they know it all. For example, if someone were to call us up and well, my wife, my wife is my law partner. She will talk to them first and she has to give them the thumbs up. If the person's kind of chauvinistic or after they talk to her for an hour, they say, oh, can I talk to the, to the guy attorney? And she'd be like, what do you mean? You just talk to me. I'm, I've been practicing law for, for 19 years. And they say, yeah, I want that guy's opinion. It's like, I don't want to deal with this person because she, she and I are going to have to represent this person. And so, and also narcissistic clients are bad because no matter what, they won't take any responsibility for any of their actions. And they, they push it all back on the attorney. And they're just not fun to work with. And especially if you lose they will pursue you until the day they die blaming they'll blame the lawyer for everything that happened so but most of our clients so when they when they're accused they're like oh it's going to i didn't do anything wrong or this is a misunderstanding they think it's going to be worked out and it's sort of a wake up call so let's say you're a colonel and you spent 25 years in the military and all of a sudden you get something an allegation lobbed at you you think everything's going to work out right so you talk to the police and you think they're they're just trying to investigate 
then you realize that the, the NCIS or CID, those are the investigative branches of the Navy and the Army, have stacked the deck. They overlooked a lot of evidence that shows you're not guilty. Then, then it's a real wake-up call for these people who devoted their life to the military, and they're thinking, what, what's going on? And, and what ends up happening is they get a target painted on their back, and they will pursue them for the most part until they either plead guilty or they get an acquittal. So, but it's fun for me though. It's, that's why I like the art of trial warfare. That's just a, a very short book that I wrote. It was more for myself and for other lawyers that I speak with, because when you're going into case after case after case, and you can't win every case, any lawyer that says they're undefeated is a liar or they haven't done many cases. I, and sometimes you hear, Oh, I've done a thousand trials, never lost one. I question that person's veracity because most of the great lawyers have lost a lot of cases because that's where you learn. Just with everything, everything in life, you have to lose. You have to fail. You have to keep getting up. And that's how you get better and better. Whereas if you have won supposedly every single case and you're some God's gift to lawyering, you're probably, if that's more in your head than anything else. And, and, you're, and you're not able to learn from mistakes if you have that mindset. Michael, can you give us some insight into Sun Tzu's Art of War and then why you wrote it and kind of just give us that mindset that you go in with? I think that's super valuable. Obviously, for the listeners, I've read tons on Michael. He's extremely successful. He has, I think from reading, there was a 95% chance that people plead guilty. You don't do that for your clients and in your career. You, you, is that what I'm understanding? That's correct. I mean, so I would say over the past five years, Adam, we do on average about 20, sometimes I do 20, 22, 23 trials in a year, like felony trials. They're very, they're compact in the military. So it's not like the OJ Simpson case that went on for a year. Ours generally lasts one week and we might start at seven in the morning and go till 10 at night because the docket is super tight in the military. So, you know, going back to the, the to the Sun Tzu, I, my dad bought me that book when I was a lieutenant and I was a newly commissioned lieutenant and I read it and, you know, there's some great tips in there and I, and I had heard about it growing up, but I went back to reading it after I had gone through about two years of being a military attorney, a military defense lawyer. And, and I started talking about what was in there with my wife and some of the, some of the chapters, because it's tough to be a new criminal defense lawyer, especially in the military, like where you're losing 95% of your cases or, or they're kind of pushing you to plead you know, one out of 20 of your cases, your client walks out the rest, he, he or she goes to jail it can be pretty disheartening. And I started realizing that this, this is sort of like a racket because I started, I mean, I didn't plead 20 of my people guilty, but I was seeing this going on around me. So I started fighting cases where my client would say, I didn't do it. I wouldn't start browbeating them into taking a plea. We would fight it. And then I started realizing when we started fighting the cases that the government was like a big bully. Like they stacked the deck, like a bully on the corner. I'm going to beat you up. And no one ever confronts the bully. And then when you actually confront the bully, you realize the bully's a big wimp. The bully, like most bullies are, you have to have someone in power supporting you. So a lot of prosecutors, in my opinion, are like bullies in, in the military. They stack the deck. If they, if they can't get you on five of the charges, they'll add other charges like disrespect, showing up late for work, adultery. That's a big one. I see them throw on there. Uh, they back when I was a, a Jag, they used to throw sodomy on there. Like or consensual sodomy was a crime. And this is an example. 
when I just started saying like, something's wrong here, they would charge, they would accuse someone of something and the person wouldn't plead guilty. So they would add a, a sodomy charge. I'm like, this is consensual sodomy between two adults. How is this even a crime? Cause it, I mean, it was only a crime in several States and, but they would use that to try to get a conviction on the person. It was a five year offense. I'm talking like husband and wife sodomy, I mean, consensual oral or whatever sodomy, but they would use that also to target the, the sodomy rules were used historically in the military to heart to target homosexuals. Cause if they couldn't homosexuality in the military was a crime up until mid two thousands. A lot of people don't know that in, in battle mind, there's a character that ends up getting in trouble in the military for being a lesbian in the book that I, I just wrote and they railed rode her and, and kick her out. And that was a way to kind of target people that they didn't like, or people that kind of were outside of their little circle of trust, they would just accuse you of uh, being gay or, and whatnot, and they would kick you out. And, and if they wanted to, they would charge you with sodomy. So, and that's a whole nother story because like, what was going on there was very unjust and, and many people wouldn't believe it nowadays if they were to hear about it. But there was a lot of people that just got railroaded and their careers destroyed. So I was seeing all this happening and I reread The Art of Trial Warfare, coming back to that. The art of the art of war, and I started realizing that if I, instead of playing their game, I start setting my own, playing my own game, and and not playing by necessarily the rules they want me to play by. And so the best quote from the art of the art of war that I think applies to my practice and applies to life is: you attack what is weak, you avoid what is strong, and 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 that can apply to pretty much anything. So as a lawyer, I look at the government's case. And if they have a strong piece of forensic evidence and I can't touch it, I'm not going to go in and start quibbling about the DNA evidence. What I'll do is look at the other weaknesses in their case, you know, witnesses that are untruthful, witnesses that have a motive, missing evidence, evidence they, they didn't collect that they should have collected. And we go after the weaknesses in the government's case. This is my strategy in a nutshell for anyone out there that's a lawyer. This will increase your win ratio by tenfold. You attack the government's weaknesses. And when I say the government or your opponent, your opponent has an ego. Your opponent wants to win, regardless of whether their, their side is right or wrong. So when you attack their weaknesses, almost every time they move into a defensive position. So let's say they have a witness that's, that's a not truthful person or they have a piece of weak evidence. When you attack it in the beginning of your case, in the opening statement and on cross-examination, almost always they move into a defensive position and they try to bolster that witness's credibility or that their testimony. And so when you attack what's weak and it pushes them into a defensive position, it, it weakens other part of their offense. So it's like attacking a castle or attacking the enemy's lines. Historically in warfare, they even dating back to 2,500 years ago in ancient China, where this book was written, the art of war, the scrolls were written. You attack the weak parts of the enemy's formation. And whenever the enemy starts seeing those parts of the, uh, of the line collapse, they'll take people from the, the strong part and move them to the weak part, which then weakens their strong part. And so that's basically the pincer movement you see a lot in modern warfare where you attack the sides, they move to the sides and you strike through the middle or through the back. And so we do that in trial and we just avoid attacking the enemy's strengths. And the other great thing with the art of uh, the war that applies to business and to life, there's so many passages in there where Sun Tzu talks about just knowing when to stop, knowing when to shut your mouth, and knowing when to not attack. 
And, and the biggest problem that I see with most people in personal relationships, in courtrooms, particularly, particularly lawyers in business is they don't, people don't know when to stop talking. They have to say something. They have to get the last word in. They, they make decisions based on emotion rather than on logic and on the facts. And more importantly, they just, instead of speaking and thinking twice and then, and then speaking, they, they talk, they talk, they talk. And if you turn on any news channel, you see the same thing. People don't, they talk too much and they don't listen. And, and you probably have many people that you bring on or you know in life that you're talking to them, you ask them a question. They, and I'm, hopefully I'm not doing this now, but they don't answer your question <laughs> that's being asked. They're just waiting for the next opportunity to say their piece. And I see that a lot in court. And those folks are very easy to set up like a tennis ball and then schwack from the side and, and beat them. I love it, man. That's, that's great advice. By the way, you answered it perfectly. Do you recommend using this art of war in our relationships with our wives? <laughs> Parts of it. Okay. So, look at it as the art of peace. Like attack the weakness. Attack the weakness. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't do the, don't do the attack to weaknesses. Well, actually, yeah, that would apply to your wife too, because if you think about it, just concede. And, and I don't remember who said this, but maybe it was Jerry Spence, the attorney, you know, the best way to win an argument with your wife is to avoid it. I think he might've said that. And that's so true. I, my wife is probably not going to watch this, and I love her very much. We just we were married yesterday for 22 years. Congratulations. Anniversary, thanks. Congrats. Yesterday was our anniversary. And I tell her this stuff, and I taught my son this. My son's a young man now, and he uses it on my wife too. Like when my wife starts arguments with him or picks on him, he'll just concede the point and like even agree with her and then say, okay, and, and admit, admit wrongdoing and walk away, and it frustrates her. And, but that applies in court as well. So when the judge scolds you so often, the average person, because they have an ego, especially because there's people when they're watching you, they always want to talk back to the judge. Like you see on TV, they're always like bickering back and forth. If you want to gain favor with the judge and gain credibility with the jury, when they, like if they object and they say, objection hearsay, and you know that it's hearsay and you know you don't have an exception, you can often say, you know what, right? You're right, Your Honor. That is hearsay. And, and Every time I say something like that, the jury kind of laughs. The judge is like, all right, we'll just move on. And then you kind of move on and attack from a different angle versus bickering back and forth about what is hearsay technically and what is an exception. And then you lose the point. So everything we do in court, everything I do in court and in life, I try to, it's a struggle, has to have a specific purpose and a specific objective. If it doesn't, I look at it like a football field as well. If you're on the football field in the Super Bowl, if you're going to do anything, object, call a witness, do anything, it, it should be gaining you about five to 10 yards, depending on the circumstances. We don't just run plays in life. And, and running a play can mean asking a question, making objection, anything, unless it's going to gain us five to 10 yards. So a lot of times my clients will come to me like, hey, like my case, I have a case on Monday. I'm in Texas right now from talking to you from a hotel room. My client brought in these witnesses that he wanted us to interview. So my co-counsel and I interview them and are like, these guys kind of suck. I mean, they're not that good. <laughs> they're supposedly alibi witnesses. And, and so we know, we, the government knows about them too, the prosecution. And, and so yesterday we're like, how many yards are these people gonna gain? They're probably gonna lose us five, 10 yards because <laughs> they're kind of sketchy witnesses. So when in doubt, cut them out. And, and I, so we cut those witnesses. And instead of just running every play you can, and I think that's the same thing applies to 
what, when you're dealing with your spouse, for example, just because you can make an argument or say something doesn't mean you should. And another piece of advice, going back to the 22 years of marriage, which is not easy, by the way. Oh, <laughs> a lot no. of props to you. Yeah. <laughs> patience and tolerance and a lot of other things in between. But I don't know if you all have read the book, the Dale Carnegie book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. If you haven't I've heard of it, yeah. read it. It's excellent. You can get, get the audio book. It's pretty easy to read on your way to work. The number one rule in the book, and this is the best advice that, that I could give to anybody, is to never criticize, condemn, or complain. And the book isn't just about making friends. It's just about basically how to get along with people and how to succeed. But if you never criticize, condemn, or complain, and you kind of avoid people that do, your life is going to be so much better. And, and then the problem is you then start realizing that most people that you deal with, that's all they do is criticize people, condemn, and complain. None of those things gain us anything in life. And, and those are three things we have, we have absolute control over as humans. The corona could be happening. Our businesses could be failing. Criticizing, condemning, and complaining about the situation never drives the ball down the field. If anything, it's, it's kind of unbecoming. It takes away from what we should be doing, and it makes us weak. Even small things, and I'm guilty of this, like this hotel room I'm in, and it looks like a lot of soldiers. It's a residence in, but a lot of soldiers have probably partied on this couch. It's kind of it's <laughs> a scummy hotel. It's right outside <laughs> the gates. It's so I, I brought these wipes and I'm wiping it down. And I, I was telling my wife, man, this toilet is broken and they're not cleaning the rooms because of COVID, you know? And so I would clean my own room and, and whatnot. I could be like, oh man, this hotel sucks and this is terrible. And it doesn't get me anywhere. And you got to make the best of it, of your situation and, and just be grateful for what you have. Yeah. Hey, Michael, what was the name of that book again? It was how to make it's, friends and influence people. Yes. It's Dell Carnegie. This book was written in the 1920s, I believe. And, and he was like the Tony Robbins of the era, Del Carnegie. And he had conferences and seminars all over the country. He, he was like an international bestseller. But the book, I read that thing probably eight, eight or nine times. I've made my, tried to make my kids listen to the audiobook. Um, but when, it, when you have teenagers, making them do anything is not that easy. <laughs> but eventually, they'll, they'll go back and read it. But it's Del Carnegie, How to Make Friends and Influence People. It, I think if they would make everybody read that book in middle school, grade school, and college, the world would be a much better place. And it's, it's not political advice at all. It's just on how to be a decent human being. Yeah. And, and what I find is a lot of what he teaches and what a lot of the thought leaders teach, it goes back. If you trace back, like a lot of what Tony Robbins says, and I, I've been to one of his seminars. I've listened to a lot of his stuff, and I, I think he has some good material. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but he has good material. But if you trace it back, you trace it back to you know some of the folks from the 1700s, the, the, the founding fathers of America. I know they had a, their own flaws and problems, but they they wrote about like Ben Franklin wrote about a lot of the same thing. So Tony Robbins didn't come up with anything original. Del Carnegie really didn't come up with anything that original. They're kind of the messengers. But if you trace that back where people like Ben Franklin were educated or John Adams, it comes back, it goes, go, goes back to the classics, like the ancient Greeks. I would say the ancient Romans, but the Romans, for the most part, took whatever they had, a lot of the philosophy from the Greeks as well. And I'm sure that there were people who 
had these philosophies way before the Greeks. We just don't, it's lost to history. But a lot of what they're teaching is ancient Stoicism repackaged in a modern, by modern people, they can kind of sell it. So I think we might've spoken about this through email, but another series of, of books that I read are the Ryan Holiday books on, on Stoicism. The obstacle is the way and ego is the enemy. And Ryan Holiday is an interesting character. I don't, I don't personally know him, but he has a, he has a pretty good following now. He kind of reinvented and reintroduced, I would say reintroduced Stoicism in that thought process to the modern business person out there now. And he has a, a daily Stoic email that you can get in the mail. And I get those every day. I don't have time to, they're pretty short, but they're every day. So they're just basically a quote in his take on the quotes. And when I turned up 40, about almost six years ago, I, I started kind of re-envisioning my, my life. Like, where am I? What am I happy with? What I need to improve? And I started reading his books, which made a, I, his books made a big difference in my life. So if y'all haven't read them, and if your listeners out there haven't read them, those are excellent books. Uh, they're very, they're very basic. It isn't like, a, I don't know if you took philosophy in college. My class was kind of boring. I don't remember hearing anything about Marcus Aurelius or Stoicism or anything like that. It was more, you know, your standard um, class that to me didn't make much sense at the time. But the way he breaks it down, it really applies to athletes, to professional business people, to, to mothers and fathers. And he just teaches you to, to really focus on what you can control. Like what instead of worrying about what everyone else can control, like I can't control the number of masks that are out there being produced. And I, so me getting angry about the fact that there aren't even enough masks now to go around and the, the coronavirus testing is a debacle and all these other issues that are in our society right now, I can't control all of those things yet. They make you upset and they make you emotional, especially when you watch the news. But what I can control is how I react to that. And I can control how I raise my children and what example I set and whether I'm nice to person that I don't have to be nice to in words that I use and words that I say, those are things I can't control. And, and if you worry about that, if everyone just worried about that is controlling and being the best person we can and not worrying about everyone controlling everyone else, then I think, again, we would be in a lot better place in this world. And it's not hard to do. You Green should advice, treat, man. Yeah. That's, that's just good life advice. <laughs> and it's easy and it's free. You don't, <laughs> Like if you're just nice to people and say good morning and, and, and it's not fake either. You, it's because if you're thinking of it that way, ah, I got to say nice to this, be nice to this person, just treat others with respect. I don't care who they are. They don't have to be the, the CEO or it could be the guy who parks your car. It could be anyone from no matter who they are. And that's a big problem we have in this country too. And I don't want to be, I'm kind of violating the principle what I just said, but I think that if we just treated everyone from the, from a person who just got here, that's parking cars to, to the senior executive the same, with the same decency and respect, I think, and lift everybody up, it would make, make our country and us a better, better people. So, Michael, I got to ask you a question. I, uh, I know you're a renowned defense attorney, and this was just something that I thought about that I'd, I've always wanted to ask someone in your position. So, like, let's say you've got this new client, right? And they're accused of this like heinous, heinous crime. And it's, it's just, it's messed up. It's like, you know, movie stuff. And you're sitting around, you're sitting with them in this room and you're asking them all these questions. And all of a sudden you realize, oh shit, he done it. 
Like he de- he definitely did whatever 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 this is for some maybe he he done it. What goes through your mind? I just need to know. Like what what do you feel? Is it like fight or flight or just give us a little insight into that? You would be surprised. It that is so uncommon because the average human, no matter what they do they justify and rationalize their behavior. So it is so rare for someone to come to me. This person could have killed someone in five people and buried the bodies in shallow graves and be selling meth to five-year-olds and th- they will rationalize it. So let's just take that hypothetical. What, what if you do, what if you, they don't admit it to you, but you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, this guy probably did it. I mean, you obviously advise the person of their, of their rights and, and they, they know what the rights are. The question is, what do they want to do about it? And those cases, believe it or not, are actually easier for me. The ones, the ones where somebody's accusing your client of something and it's, there's a motive there, those are, and, and, and you think the person's innocent, those are actually very tough and very stressful. But where your client is, is guilty as heck and you know it and they're like, I want to fight this, believe it or not, and you do fight it and you question the police officers and you question you know, whoever the witnesses are, the case flows a little differently and you can, you know, you're like on the Titanic going down. And so a lot at that point, you're just making sure that, that the government did their job, that they don't violate the person's due process rights and that the person doesn't get an excessive sentence. Luckily I haven't had, like you're talking like a serial killer type thing. Yeah. I haven't <laughs> had any of those. And I did a case years ago where this guy was in uh, it was at Fort McPherson in Atlanta, which I think, I know the, the place closed down. It was an old army base. I think Tyler Perry, Perry, Tyler Perry bought all, all that land up and he turned it into a movie studio which in Atlanta, which is pretty cool. But it used to be an old Civil War era uh, military compound. And so this guy, this sergeant, his name is Sergeant Valmont. This is in the news, so it's not secretive. He basically brought a 40 into work. He couldn't lose weight. And if you, if you can't lose your, there's a height weight standard in the military. And if you don't lose a certain amount of weight over time, they put you on a diet and everything. If you can't lose it, then they'll give you paperwork, like a counseling statement. And they could eventually kick you out. It's pretty rare, but they can. So this guy wasn't making the height weight. And he basically was threatened with paperwork. And he showed up with a 40 and he just shot up the office and he killed this guy. This, this guy was innocent who was about to retire. And this guy went through four different attorneys. You know, he had three civilian attorneys. I was the third. And then he had another military lawyer. He might've had two military lawyers as well, but we tried that case. Uh, the four, we had four lawyers at the table and it was like a, it was like a beat down, you know, when the government called, they brought this whole team in from Washington that the army did. They called this renowned, forensic pathologist. They called all these renowned people. They were like super credible. And we had to cross-examine these folks, but our client did it. And everybody saw him do it. He admitted to doing it. He actually turned himself in afterwards and said, yeah, I shot my boss. So that's an example of like, what do you do? Well, we did the best we could and he got life without parole. Yeah. So, and then I left town and went out to dinner and moved on to my next case. So I didn't lose any sleep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I was actually, I was thinking like, if he's like, Mr. Waddington, let's do a, let's do a face to face in a small room. I'd like to talk to you about this. Is that one of the situations you're like, nah, let's do zoom. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, if that's the case, it, what's funny about that case is we didn't have, well, if you wanted to do a face-to-face -face in a small room, I, I think I could handle myself. But I don't want to be in a situation where I have to choke out my own client or something. <laughs> but uh, I have them in a rear naked or something. But uh, no, in that case, the victim's family, they were from New York. And so the victim was, he was from New York, but he was, family was Puerto Rican. And the defendant that I was representing from, was from St. Croix. So they both brought their families in and the judge knew something was up. And, and the judge was one of the older judges in the military, a pretty wise guy. He like put plainclothes people in the courtroom. So anyway, they were talking in, during the court about kicking, like taking out the kick in my ass and my co-counsel, Tim Balecki. He was a civilian lawyer too. They knew what hotel we were in because they put us all in the same hotel with the victim's family. And so the judge told us in a minute, he took a break and he tells us, they hear you them talking out there, the, the police officers, you guys need to move out of the hotel and go to another town. But we were in Hinesville, Georgia. I don't know if y'all ever been to Hinesville. No. I been to Hinesville now. Don't ever go there. <laughs> it's it's that probably like one terrible place. It's there's nothing there but an but an infantry armor base or army post. And it's not a good place to go. I feel uncomfortable going there. I'm a Yankee Catholic from, and I feel uncomfortable there just because of a lot of rebel flags still flying. I was there like two weeks ago on a case and my son was with me and he's like, I thought that my son, we, we live in Miami. He spent most of his life growing up in Puerto Rico. We did because we used to live there. The amount of rebel flags we found on the way, because you get off 95 and you drive like 40 minutes back down some back roads. It's pretty rural. And then you get to this army post. But anyway, so we moved out of that and went to some other scummy hotel. And then after the guy was convicted, then it was the guys from St. Croix who wanted to kick our asses. So that's why I was saying like, we got in the car, like we literally left. Whether you murder someone or not, you're going to blame someone else. And who, it's easy to blame me. It's like, oh, Waddington screwed me. <laughs> and so my buddy Tim Balecki and I, the other Savannah lawyer, we like jumped in the car and we like got the hell out of town. And we went to Savannah and, you know, went out to eat. And the least we got out of that town. But yeah, that, that area of the country, and I, I don't know if any of your listeners are from that area. And I, and I don't mean to be offended anyone, but that area is, uh, I lived in Georgia for about seven years when I was in the army. That area has always... There are a lot of crazy crimes that happened down there. Like the, like right near there was the, you know, the gentleman that was, was chased down and hit by the truck. Uh, Arbery, I think is his last name. And then shot. Yeah. Like that case is like from right up the street from there. Wow. It's oh, wow. a kind of a scary place. Sergio, do not go to this place. Well, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I don't like so, your odds. I was like, yeah, I'm staying away. But Michael, my dad was born in Atlanta. So okay. he's. He's told me some stories of some of the small towns and uh, you take the wrong turn and you can, uh, people look like me, just doesn't end well for us all the time. <laughs> no, it doesn't. You know, what's interesting is when I was, so my wife, I think I mentioned this, y'all, my wife's born and raised Puerto Rico. Her dad's Cuban, her mom's Puerto Rican. And, you know, we met in college, got, went to law school together. And so I was in the army in Augusta, Georgia. And I was doing the JAG thing. And then my wife, we had the two kids, the two babies. And so she went and she was trying to get a job. And so like getting a job, this was in 2003. I mean, she went to one of the, we went to Temple Law School. She graduated with good grades from the trial program. 
and getting a job there was a little, a little more challenging than we thought. She would go to like, people wouldn't even interview her because she, they saw her as like, they like call her the hot tamale or the Mexican. She's not Mexican. She's Puerto Rican, but to them, it's all the same. Yeah. And so she got a job. The only place that would really talk to her was the public defenders. And they're like, Oh, we need a Spanish speaker. She was the only Spanish speaking civilian attorney in that town. That's the second largest town city in the state of Georgia. Augusta, Georgia has 400,000 people in the Metro. And she was the only one who spoke Spanish. And so they basically gave her, this is in 2003, four, five, six, anybody who spoke Spanish. So she would have like 25 cases a day because they were just locking up anybody that was Mexican or Hispanic for anything and just keeping them warehouse in the jail. And they would, they would extort fines out of them is what they would do. And so she would go down to the jail and they would, she would help, she would go to what's called jail clearing. And, and these are people who are working. They, they actually had jobs and families and everything. And so she would help them get out of jail because otherwise they would sit in jail until they got an interpreter, which could take a year or two. I'm talking for like petty offenses. And so after she did that for a while, she just went into private practice. She realized like every one of the, of the guys we represented, you know, they'd come to us with their family would come to us and they're like, they wanted to pay, pay her to represent them so she could make a lot more money and, and do a better job doing and representing these folks independently. And so that's how our first law practice, 50% of our clients were Spanish speaking. And so I would go all over, when I got out, I would go all over South Carolina and Georgia into these podunk towns. And I speak Spanish pretty well too. And I'd have to try to get these guys out. And some of them had been in jail, man, since like there's this one kid who was 14 and he said he was 16 on some paperwork just to get a job at the lumber mill. But he was a kid. He was a kid. And that they left that guy in there for like three years until the time I got involved. And it was for some BS. So anyway, that's one of the reasons we left that city. We moved to Puerto Rico and we lived there for seven years because I wanted our kids to kind of get a different, well, I wanted them to speak Spanish and see their family and get a whole different perspective because growing up there, especially as like a white guy, like until they find out that you're like a, a Yankee and that's still a thing to them, like I, they'd be like, so where are you from? I'd say I grew up near Pittsburgh and like you're a Yankee to them. Just by being around them, I would hear some of the things that were being said, like in private conversations or in these dinners and bar events by like judges, prosecutors, and some of the some of the things were being said were, were actually pretty scary and troubling because the filter comes off when these folks are drinking. I'm not saying everybody's like that, but a lot of them were. Their racial discussions and their opinions start flowing at a wine tasting, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and these are judges. So, oh, that's, that's really comforting. <laughs> so we, <laughs> like in Miami, <laughs> down in Miami right now, it's pretty cool because it's, uh, so we went to Puerto Rico and then Hurricane Maria hit. And then we had a law practice there in San Juan. And so we had to, with, with very little time, I had to pick a place to move. And I said, well, we could move that to Georgia. And my wife was like, absolutely not. You know, cause <laughs> and so we moved to Miami. I don't know if y'all have ever been there, but it's, yeah, Miami's really fun. That's it's, cool city. Your wife probably loves it. Yeah, it looks like a fun place. Oh yeah. It's my, it's yeah. really fun too. So like I do jujitsu. I'm not very, I'm a, I'm a newbie, but like at my gym. Oh, me and Lee do too. Yeah. Oh, oh Yeah. So Long it's time to uh, go for me. <laughs> I go to Henzo Gracie over there in, in Weston, Florida. But the oh, gym awesome. is awesome because it's, it's really, really what is America. You have 
I mean, you have a little bit of everything there. You have all sorts of different people. It's both men and women, but you have like my sparring partner is a Jamaican guy, Brazilian guy, Brazilian guy who's been here for 20 years. You have an Egyptian guy. You have, it's a little bit of everything and every, you know, in jujitsu, everybody just kind of gets along. It's, you're there just for the, the, the camaraderie and the training and all that. So, but that's, that's what's great about um, the Miami, Florida area. And I love it. Come down when COVID's done. Yeah, I was going to say, can't train too much now with COVID, yeah. <laughs> so, Michael, i got to ask you, uh, one thing that was really interesting about your bio is you did mention that you and your wife went to college together, but going through law school and having kids during that time, like, can you give us a little insight? How the hell did you do that? I mean, that's, that's yeah, I can't, insane. I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, so. Especially two. Yeah. It's, we'll talk about, you know, getting you disciplined. And, and having kids is one of those things that can kind of get you, you either sink or swim, you know? So my, so my wife and I met in, I was a junior, she was a sophomore in college in Pittsburgh. A lot of her friends from Puerto Rico, their parents sent them off to college in the States. And so she went to Duquesne in Pittsburgh. And then, so we met, we were dating, and then we went to law school and we got married her first year. And so like six, seven, eight weeks later, she got pregnant with my son and Alex. I was kind of excited because I was one of kids, but she was just, come on, as a freshman or for one L in law school to be pregnant, everybody's like, oh, you're going to quit. You're going to quit. Because back then, everyone, all the women we knew that got pregnant in law school, that was kind of the thing. Like, if you get pregnant, you got to quit, right? I don't know why looking back, because law school is, I think, easier than actual life and running a business and all that. It depends on your perspective. But anyway, then, so my son was born. She, we didn't quit. She just, we just started switching our schedule up. So we would take turns watching him. And then, like, my, my kids are 10 months apart. So the doctor, you know, they give you the orders. You're, you're not supposed to do this or within a certain period of time. I don't know. I don't think we follow the rules. So my, my daughter is born. <laughs> my son's born, like, the end of 2019 in December. My daughter was born the first week in November. So they're almost like twins as close as you can get. But yeah, we would bring them into law school with, in the baby, in the jogger or in like a, one of those double jogger things. And then a lot of the, a lot of the folks in the law school were very helpful. And the Dean at Temple was great. She gave us, there was a bunch of empty rooms. She let us go in there, take turns. And so when my daughter, when my wife uh, graduated, she walked across the stage with the, cause everyone knew my, my little babies at the time, cause they were always around. She went across stage with the two kids in her arms so after that, a lot of the females in the women in the school started getting pregnant and they, and so now Temple has a lot of moms with kids and they have to, obviously you have to juggle that and it's not easy, but it was kind of the beginning of a trend. And I'm glad we had him then versus later because, you know, we got, I got to spend a lot of time with him and be there to raise them, you know, for the first couple of years. And so how do we do it? I don't know. I mean, it's just like everything in life. Like when you're getting crushed down by something, you just, you just do it. You just you know? figure and, it out. You survive, right? You figure yeah. it out. And so, yeah, we, I, which every opportunity, every, everything like that presents you with opportunity. So I needed to make money. And so I, I started working just back when the internet was just taken off and a friend of mine, a friend of a friend of a friend says, Hey, I know you know a little bit about websites. So I got a job when I was in law school working for an Israeli diamond company down in the diamond district. And they were trying to take over the East Coast in terms of, it's called GN Diamond. I didn't know much about 
like you know back in the day where you'd have html code by hand i had like learned how to do it on the internet and so i could do like a pretty crappy website by hand <laughs> this is back in 98 98 99 yeah so the zvika herskovitz was his name and he was the owner of this company and he brought me in and i was like their biz so he would send me to these like seminars and stuff on web development web marketing and so what we did was we went out and we made websites for all of his customers. This is back before people wanted websites. And so you would have like your own website. Like let's say you're a small mom and pop jewelry store in New Jersey and we would load it with all of our database of diamonds and jewelry. And if someone selected a certain diamond, we would then have couriers run them those diamonds, like four or five diamonds in fitted uh, rings by the end of the day or by the next day, which really crushed their competition. And so, that was a great opportunity because then, then when I came time to running my law business, like I knew how to do that stuff. And, and in between, even when I was in the army, I wasn't supposed to be working, but I was still doing consulting. And that, that's back in the day when like black hat SEO was a thing where you could like spam Google, you know? <laughs> and, and so <laughs> people would hire us to market their businesses and websites. And, and there, that was like a whole community. I don't know if y'all know about that back in the day. You would go to these black, it's called Black Hat SEO, search engine optimization. And it would be all these like self-made millionaires sitting around coming up with ways to trick Yahoo and Google and all that. But Google has pretty much crushed all those folks and, and put them, those guys out of business. But it was a good, it was kind of like the wild west of the internet back in early 2000 to 2005 or six. Good times. Yeah, well, a lot of your experience and everything in, in uh, trial and court and a lot of the stuff that your books are based off of it's kind of giving you a really cool avenue into some movie consulting, right? Yeah, it has. It, so before COVID, we had a couple projects in the works. I had consulted with um, with good, the TV show The Good Wife, and and these I saw things. That on the I'd never even watched the show before. I got a phone call. <laughs> Ted Humphrey, he's one of the executives at CBS, and he was a writer on The Good Wife. He's a lawyer. He went to Georgetown, and he he was trying to come up with ideas. Anyway, I ended up consulting with them. We did two different shows about court martials where the main character and the good wife went into a military court, which is kind of like, is what I do, but it kind of gave the perspective of what it's like in military court. And those shows did very, very well. And a lot of the consulting we do is for like documentaries. And before COVID, we had a, it's going to come, it's going to be coming out. It's just a matter of time. We were working on a show that's going to be a, myself, I partnered with a few people. We're working on a show that's going to be basically this character who starts out as sort of a, as a JAG lawyer that kind of like my background, who then ends up getting into the military courts and realize that the only way to win is to break all the rules and to be just as corrupt. And so the, the character's arc is he starts out as this very clean cut military guy with the family. And by the end of the, the couple seasons, he's basically a criminal and it's going to, it involves a lot of real, real cases. We fictionalize it all. Sign me up for that. That sounds. Yeah, that sounds cool. It sounds like a like a Breaking Bad. <laughs> That's what I was just saying. Like Breaking Bad. <laughs> it, and so we have different plots, things that you would never. And these are true stories. And 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 whenever we were pitching this show, people in Hollywood are like, "Yeah, is this real?" Or like, there's there's one called Nine Lives. One of the episodes is basically about this this hunt for these bomb makers in Iraq. This is based on true events, in a case I did. And they kept this, this bomb maker in Iraq was killing, blowing up, you know, service members along this route. This is in 2008. And he, they were just 
killing a lot of Americans and, and, and Iraqi coalition people. And so they, they have this hit out on this guy. And so what they started doing is they started tracking the bombs. So they would find some of his bombs, his cash, and they would put a, track, a GPS tracker on there. So anytime these things would move, they'd be tracking them around and they would send a drone up. So this guy and his team of, of IED layers was, and this, this was on video. This, I mean, we have a drone footage of this. They, he's digging, they have pre-dug holes, but he brings the, the bomb. It's basically a 500 pound artillery shell that is set to be triggered and blow up the vehicle. So what you see on the video is the artillery rounds coming in because they try to kill him with indirect artillery fire. And so they're using high explosive ordnance and it's on a infrared camera. And you see these guys like running into the, into the side of the road and the, the, the bombs are going off, the artillery is exploding and, and it doesn't kill them. So they jump into a car and they start speeding away. And it's like the OJ chase and the drone is following them. Then a helicopter, but they're like running in the goats in the middle of the road. You know, they're, they're trying to speed away and get away from this drone. And then, so then a Kiowa helicopter, that's like a smaller helicopter that has, it's a scout helicopter. It comes swinging into the picture. And then there's like a gunfight between the helicopter. It just has a machine gun and one hellfire. And they're shooting out of the car. And then they, they speed into a, a village. The hellfire, the the Kiowa lines up on the, the vehicle here and it fires that one hellfire. And you can't make this stuff up, but the guys jump out of the car at the last minute, the back two doors are open and the, the hellfire goes through the back door, sets the car on fire. The, the, it doesn't blow up in the car and it hits the house. And so these guys run away. So now the, the Kiowa helicopter has, has a laser pointing to the house that they're in, but you can't stay on target for long because you run out of gas. So they call in this guy named Colonel Browder. He's a real guy. Colonel Browder looks like Skeletor and he's like this angry killer type infantry officer, like, like who you want in the infantry. He kind of reminds me of the guy from Avatar, the Colonel. Oh yeah. He looks like that. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Colonel Browder says they're, they're like, we're going to hit this house with a JDAM, which is a basically a laser guy, a bomb, kill everybody in there, get it over with. Browder wants payback and he wants boots on the ground. So he sends in this scout platoon. And so they have already tried to kill these guys multiple times. So they send in the scout platoon and my guy, my client goes to the, they send him across this. It's nighttime. He, he looks in the windows and they're like, you know, we're going to basically throw grenades in and take the house. And he comes back and he says, there's, there's children in there. Then they decide they're going to hit the side of the house because there's an ID in the front. They're going to hit the house with a, it's a called a small D. It's a, it's a shoulder-fired anti-tank rocket that you can blow open a wall and then run in through the wall. The problem is that was a stupid move. So they, the, the scouts, they hit the, the Americans, they hit the side of the house. It's not going to kill anyone inside, but it's going to blow open the wall. It's called an active breach. You can breach through and then take your target down. Well, the problem is when you hit a dusty house in Iraq with a rocket, it kicks up a lot of dust. So night vision doesn't work in the dust. And it's, so anyway, these guys end up storming the house and nobody can see who's, who's who. And there's family in there. So anyway, they capture these four dudes that were in the car with, a, and then they find a family. And so then the crime occurs. And so the a guy named Sergeant Corrales, he was the leader of the scouts. He ends up shooting one of the guys in the back in the face and then some other soldiers are involved with finishing them off type of thing. 
this is all against the rules of, of law. So these are all crimes that are occurring here. Anyway, they end up not, the guy doesn't die. So then they take this individual, the bomb, one of the bomb uh, layers, and they strap him to a Humvee and tie him down like a deer. And so they're bahan across. So now we have to medically evacuate, evacuate this guy. He falls off the front of the hood, I think on purpose, and they run him over with the Humvee. This is, I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm laughing. Wait till the ending. And so this is one of the episodes of the show. This but this, is all, this has all been in the news. If you look up uh, USV Corrales, USV Shore, these cases end up going to court martial in Hawaii. And I tried, I defended one of these guys. And so they put him back on the Humvee, take him to a medical evac- evacuation helicopter. They take him to a hospital in Ramadi. And they're trying to save him. And he's living, right? So he's like on life support. And then another ID goes off and kills and injures some Americans and some Iraqis. So the doctor kills him. The doctor pulls the plug on the guy. So then it turns into a, into a court martial. And right before the court martial, this is a terrible part of the story. Right before the court martial, half of the platoon dies. Like the helicopter crashes. And so half the witnesses, they perish. They, they die. These are all American men. The army trucks forward. They're like, no, we're going to court martial these individuals. But half the witnesses aren't there. And so they make this into this sensationalistic trial. I did the case in Hawaii. And so the media was there and, and I was able to show that my guy is not the one who shot this individual. When I fly into places, I don't necessarily have all the technology, especially back in 2008. So I went to a wig shop and I got a, one of those styrofoam wig heads and I bought, I went to Lowe's and I got a, like wooden dowels, like sticks. And I just showed, like I stuck them through the head and it, it showed it was impossible that my guy could have killed this individual based on what the witnesses are saying. So in the end, there's a, there's a good a tragedy in many ways. My guy ended up just getting convicted of assault, acquitted of murder. Corrales, the guy who did shoot him multiple times, admittedly, was acquitted because the jury just kind of like, this guy's a terrorist. That's what I'm thinking. So because the second guy was acquitted, the general like overturned part of my guy's conviction. And guess where they sent these two individuals after the murder trial? Sergeant Corrales got promoted. They sent him to teach infantry tactics. Sergeant Corrales is the one who straight up shot the guy in the face and back five times. What? Then they redeployed him as a first sergeant, which is the head of a whole company. I don't know whatever happened to this guy. And then my guy went on to get promoted and got, he, he's teaching infantry. He was teaching infantry tactics. So after these guys were basically exonerated, they put him out teaching. <laughs> Future. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, the uh, like, there's that one, and there's there's one we had, you know, the king of all pimps, and it was it was a story based on this guy, this sergeant major, very high up guy who was over in Afghanistan. He was running a alcohol distribution network in a brothel, but the brothel was consisting of soldiers and airmen that were prostituting themselves to other people and they figured hey what the hell I might as well make some money and then and then it was impossible to to charge this guy because he had his tentacles so deep with his alcohol distribution everybody knew this guy either through the alcohol thing or the prostitution 
the prostitution ring he was running. Just take take my money now, Michael. The, all this shit is crazy. This is, this is <laughs> you just never you never hear about the, like these cases. You might like get a blurb in the news. Like now, can you? Uh, it's interesting. They don't give you like you're not like bound by some NDA to like. So you're able to monetize on all these experiences that you've you've been through. It sounds like I could. Y- yes, I could. You know, I, I really haven't monetized them. For example, the, the book Battle Mind, that's a fictional book that was loosely based on a case that I did, my last case in the army. Okay. Most of my clients, the ones that I like that I'm telling these crazy stories about, I'm, I'm friends with these folks on Facebook and like, the, and I keep in touch with them. And I, unless they tell me, hey man, let's do something. And uh, I, I don't, I haven't monetized off of it. I mean, I'm telling you these stories and I could, I could turn it into like, the plot of a, a good wife episode, but I haven't really, I could, I mean, I could do a lot more with it, but, but there's no NDA. There's no non-disclosures. There are no, if the case is in the media, like the idea of the, the case is out there. Got it. Um, obviously anything my clients tell me is confidential, but what I'm telling you, what I've been telling you guys is stuff that has come out in court. It's all in the news. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm, and I'm loyal to my clients, you know, it's the, some of them just want to move on with their lives and, and move on from the, because from these experiences and disappear and move on to their civilian lives or continue on with the military. But I, we do have a lot of people that we've represented that are, that are out there and you might run into them like, Oh, this guy's a doctor, a, a former special forces surgeon who's now working in Washington, for example. There's a guy like that that I represented that, we cleared his name up and he just moved on with his life. Michael, so, where can people find more about like your book? the book that's coming out where where can they get more information on it because i'm just listening to like when you were telling the story about everything i was like what the hell this is insane so there's some people who want to like get a little bit of entertainment in their life and get to read battle mind where can they find that so battle mind the easiest way to get it is if you just google battle mind or go into amazon it's on amazon already it came out last month and the audiobook is coming out this week so i i went and hired a i love audiobooks so when I'm traveling, I just listen to them. And so I hired an, an actor to do my, um, to do the reading and he did an awesome job, but that the audiobook's coming out th- very soon. It's finished and you can get it on Amazon. What about the art of trial war- warfare? Do you have an audiobook for that one? Yeah, actually I do. And that's a funny, it's a funny story with, it. so how do I find someone to read an audiobook? How do you do that? Well, you can read it yourself or you can go on Amazon as a thing called acx.com. It's like the audible uh, play book where you make a section where you make audio books. It's like a subsidiary of Amazon and you can audition actors. So, and you can get some pretty legitimate actors on there. So if you have a book, you can, and they, they try out and so you can listen for that one. We had like 50 people that tried out. And so my daughter and I, she was younger at the time. We went through them all and I ended up with this guy that has an English accent and it's like the all of trial warfare. So he reads it like that. And it's, it's, that book actually sells, you know, that, that book has been selling. I mean, it's a simple book. It's a simple book. And, but the ideas in the philosophy of Sun Tzu is, is really, if you, if you just erase everything I wrote and you just listen to what the quotes that I selected out of there and then talk about it. I mean, that's really the idea that I had with that. So like law students or you and I could be doing a case and we're like, man, we're going to get killed here. I'd be like, let's go back to, Attacking what is weak, avoiding what is strong, forcing your opponents to make mistakes, capitalizing on those mistakes, 
And if you follow those, those rules and that philosophy, you can turn a crappy case into a good one. So Michael, I mean, I've enjoyed you coming on the show today. You've given us some awesome stories, some awesome advice to close. I want to know you had a tremendous amount of success in being an author and as an attorney, what attributes do you think have led to your success in both of those areas? Just a little closing advice for the listeners. Yeah, what well, you, I what think you pass on to us. Well, one of the things is well, there's a lot of things, but one of them is I'm I'm constantly learning. Like if instead of wasting time on social media, I I, I use social media to my advantage to the sense like I, I subscribe to a lot of different podcasts, just like like with your podcast here, where I'm listening to other people's ideas, getting different perspectives perspectives of different people. So I listen a lot to like self-help. I read a lot. And, but the persistence, persistence and persistence is if you don't quit, you don't have to be the smartest person. You don't have to be the world. You don't have to be Ernest Hemingway reincarnated. If you just stick to it and don't quit and set your goals and don't get distracted by naysayers and negative people and set big goals. Like if I told you some of my goals, you'd be laughing at me. Like I want to have an Academy Award. For example, I want to have, I wrote years ago, I want to have a best-selling book. I wrote, I want to make X amount of money. And at the time that seemed like a lot. I wrote things. I want to sell the Caribbean on a private yacht, for example, in the Mediterranean. And I, and I made a mind movie of that. I don't know if you've ever seen it, what a mind movie is. It's basically you put images with your goals, your crazy goals. So I made one of those in like 2009. And I went back and watched it with my kids 11 years later. And I listed places that I want to visit things I want to do in my personal life and giving back to society and community. And, and anyway, I put pictures of what I envisioned and I, it's weird because I hadn't watched that thing in years. I accomplished most of those things, not necessarily directly, but I did become a cap. I got my captain's license. I sailed around the Caribbean when I lived in Puerto Rico. I've had the opportunity to, to do that many times in Europe. And I wasn't really thinking about that, but by putting those goals down and in writing, and, and a lot of people think they're goals, but they don't write them. And so I, I use Microsoft or uh, not Microsoft, uh, Apple, that little note thing, that little I think it's called note. It's on your look at it right now. I'll tell you what it is. But I use this thing like it's it's the cheapest. It's free. Yeah. Notes. You know, the little note app. Yeah, I, I use the same thing. Yeah. Every day. And I put the little bullet like you can do like a checklist. So I, I write down my goals for the day. And then I have one that has bigger goals like long-term goals. Then I put down every day. I try to do this every day, what I'm grateful for. And I do this like three affirmations and I don't just say, Oh, I'm grateful because I have kids or something like some people, they give these generic ones. And this goes back to the stoicism. You should think and be grateful for even little things in life, like fresh air. So after like hurricane Maria, having clean water to flush the toilet with is something that you take for granted, you know, having electricity, having fingers, I have fingers, I can type until you don't have those things, then you don't appreciate them. Having eyes like, and so when I hear people complaining about things, we live in a pretty great society. It has a lot of flaws. There are a lot of things that need, that can be improved and we have to strive to improve them. But we, we also have a lot to be grateful for because I sure as heck. And I, I always tell people when they're like, ah, oh, this is terrible. This, this restaurant's well, blah, blah, blah. Say, so listen, man, like you could be, like you could be in the belly of a slave ship. You're just separated from your family. You have nowhere to, to pee. You have no water. Your chance of making it are slim across the ocean. And then you're screwed for the, forever. 
if, if you put it into that perspective, it'd be like, holy shit, things can get a lot worse than you sitting around at a nice restaurant and the wine might not be as fresh as you want it. You have nothing to complain about. You always have to think of, I mean, imagine if you're, you got, if, if you made it through like Auschwitz and, but your whole family died and then Europe's in ruins and you're now a 10 year old kid who's starving to death, nowhere to go. And then you have to walk seven, 800 miles in the winter. So, and I'm not trying to, and I'm not saying all oh, that's, it makes me sad, but I think you shouldn't be complaining about anything in, in life. And that goes back to the don't criticize, condemn or complain because there's always someone who has it worse and there's always something in your mindset often makes a difference. And then you listen to people who survive those things and you listen to what they say and they often live day by day and they, they, they make the best of what experience of what they have. I'm not saying that those things are good or they, so if you approach, approach life that way and don't com- complain and you're just show a little bit of gratitude, I, it's hard to be unhappy. So people always ask me like, why well, I'm smiling, laughing. And they're like, well, you're lucky cause you're successful. Or you're like, I've always been smiling, happy like this. Something my grandma, my grandma and grandpa were poor immigrants from Poland and they lived like in a, literally a one bedroom house. My mom lived like in a little closet area as a kid. She, she would tell you a different story, but that's, they grew up in a tiny, tiny poor house that, that had like this one shower that was like basically a hose in the basement. So that was my grandma's house. And I never thought of it as a kid, but uh, it was fun for me because they always, she always made homemade food and had chicken and you know, homemade stuff. But I just don't like listening to people complain when there's so much to be grateful for in America and, and in the world in general. We're living at a time of peace for the most part, not that we don't have a long way to go, but we can actually sit here and talk right now about things and make a difference. And we can criticize politicians and stand up and, and do so without, like if this was Russia in the 1950s and we were talking, all four of us would be in the gulag in our family. <laughs> so anyway, always remember, Things could always be worse and keep your head up. Yeah, I love that, man. Yeah. You got to have gratitude. Yeah. And one of our past guests said that if you don't have gratitude you for where you are at right now, you can't go any further. And I, list, I love everything you said, man. So, hey, if you are ever in the San Jose area when this COVID thing is done, man, we'd love to take you out for a drink. Hit us up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, man. I appreciate coming on here. I had a great time. Yeah, yeah we, love, we love having you, man. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Free Retiree Show. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, a registered investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Securities offered through Securities America Incorporated. Member FINRA, www.finra.org, SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed with the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. The Free Retiree, Securities America Advisors, and Securities America Incorporated are separate entities. Career Advisor Sergio Patterson and Attorney Matt McElroy are not affiliated with Security America companies. Securities America Incorporated, Security America Advisors, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice.